0: What's up, party people in the place to be? It's Talib Kweli, the BKMC. This is People's Party. I don't know if y'all can hear it, but uh, Jasmine, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I miss you so much. I miss you too. I miss you too. Do you you hear the protest going on behind me? I can't hear the protesting. I hear kids.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I got a protest going on behind me. I'm here in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, the home of Dave Chappelle. And we are doing... um, People's Party from a remote location because we're in this COVID lockdown. Shout out to everybody who's experiencing the lockdown. If you're experiencing isolation, you know, we are here for you. The People's Party does not stop. We continue to bring the Fire Fire guest and today's guest is no different. Today's guest is a friend of mine. He's also here in Yellow Springs with me, but he's in a different undisclosed location. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest, (laughs) today's guest, man, this guy, This guy has been around hip-hop, man, for so long. Like, if you are in the hip-hop game and you don't have some sort of connection to this man, you're not really, really in the hip-hop game. Um, From DJing for Blackstar, DJing for Dave Chappelle, DJing on MTV, breaking artists like Rick Ross and Rihanna in New York City, pivoting the comedy, doing his comedy, Thug Thizzle. Give it up for the Bronx, New York's own, Cypher Sounds is in the place to be. What up, Cypher?
2: What's up, Kuali? Talib Kuali. Hi, Jasmine. What up? Welcome to my Uh, home. I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. Tell me why. This is. Tell me why you're mad, son. This is not. This is not the way I wanted to be on the show. (laughs) I wanted to meet Jasmine in person. I wanted to see if she had a good smell, a good sense to her. Uh, I watched the way you interview people, and you're very beautiful. Hello, hello. And I wanted to be in your very beautiful studio. And now I'm in like, it looks like I'm in like a, like a prison day room. Like a, like a country club, white collar prison day room. I'm not happy. Look at the shadow in the background. Looks like it's the
0: overseer. <laughs> is it, is it, you look, like, you look like you're about to rob a stagecoach, my nigga. Oh, and also I'm he not happy like about the evidence.
2: I'm not happy about
0: the evident racism on this show.
2: <laughs> <sighs> What's up, you know, Bobby? Thanks for having know, me, man. I'm super appreciative no to doubt. be here, man. I'm a big fan of the
0: show, and uh, this is my, uh, it's a dream come true. No doubt. Um, you were one of the guests that we definitely wanted to interview um, when we first started this podcast. Like, You're the perfect uh, People's Party guest. Did you know that? I did not know that, and that's that's very interesting. Because here's the thing: I
2: don't think I'm the perfect guest because I'm not going to be up here talking about how old Talib Kweli's my favorite rapper, and <laughs> I'm so honored to throw bars with you. I'm not going to go back and forth like all these other rappers, you and your friends throwing little
0: shot, little love shots at each other. That's not what this is. No doubt. Well, look, Cipher. Um... I watched a lot of your interviews before I I decided to sit down with you. And you mentioned me in just about every interview Mm -hmm. you ever did. So I want to thank you for that. Um, I also (laughs) want to tell the world that when I went, the last time I went to Jamaica, I tried to get into a hotel um, and I couldn't get into this hotel. And I was like, okay, well, at least I could go (laughs) chill on the beach by the hotel because they got the nice beach over there. And so I walked from my cheap janky hotel in the grill down to the (laughs) beach and sitting there at the restaurant on the beach with Cypher Sounds <laughs> with, some, with some on the beach with some Air Force Ones on. Yeah. Always.
2: Always stay with Air Force Ones.
0: Always. <laughs> yeah, always. you was down there visiting Max Glazer, who's a a New York DJ who has made a lot of like noise on the reggae scene. Um, and you, you know, yeah. you connected with Cardinal Official in Toronto and the Toronto reggae scene. Like you you could go and DJ a Hot 97, Bobby Connors, a Jabba show. like Tell me about your connection with reggae yeah. music. So, okay, first of all, being from New
2: York City, new, reggae mm-hmm. music is is part of the hip-hop culture. Like, it's the mm-hmm. cousin. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. close cousin. You know those cousins that you're almost like brothers? But you're not, you know, but you're cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, first cousins. So, I got my start. Um, funk, I used to open for Funkmaster Flex. He didn't like... Playing reggae. So I would play a half an hour of reggae before Flex would start. And that got <laughs> me liking reggae more. And then I'll tell you where I really got into the culture. I was in Miami, and I went to a party with, with DJ Khaled that he used to throw in Miami. And I saw real Jamaican dancehall reggae style. And it was like a uh, one. of I have a few rebirths in my life. That was one of my rebirths, where I, mm-hmm. I loved the style of how they talked over the music. And I would say 2001 yeah. is when I saw it, and I, and I got heavily influenced by the dance hall
0: DJ style. No doubt. Did you see the Beanie Man, uh, Bounty Killer versus? That was what? the best versus to me.
2: I mean, you know, they, they set it up because they were in the same place, so the audio was so good, but... If you don't, even if you don't yeah. know about their history and their, and dancehall culture and how they had mad beef and they've been going back and forth for years, it was just amazing to watch. It was just amazing to watch them go at
0: it like that. Right. It was perfect. It was a perfect. You know, the Jamaicans have mastered the the art of competing musically. The sound clash is a is a big, big, big thing, and um, you know, it's a it's part of our history and our culture. Um, your name is Cipher Sounds. Cipher Sounds. Yeah. That sounds like a 5%er yeah. name. Now, I know a little bit about your your philosophy of life, but tell, tell them about how you got the name uh, Cypher Sounds.
2: So, yeah, when I was, uh, you know, in my early, like m- last year of high school, I discovered the 5% Nation in the 90s. And um, listen, so here's what happened. One of my other rebirths, I read uh, Malcolm X autobiography. Great book. You can get and, that book
0: at QualyClub.com. <laughs> for real. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I read... I read uh, Malcolm X biography, and then at the same time in the you know the early '90s hip hop, a lot of Five Percenters were rapping in the in the music game like Brand Nubian, Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, Poor Righteous Teachers. So I was hearing the words they were using, and then I was reading Malcolm X book, and it's a lot of the same words. I didn't realize there was a difference at that time, and I just started following the Five Percent Nation. I used to go to the, the rallies and the meetings in Harlem. And uh, and I got the name God Cipher Islam Allah I
0: self Lord and Master Peace God Peace God No doubt um, <laughs> Now you started your career in the Bronx like Funkmaster Master Flex and you started out working with Funk Master Flex like you mentioned earlier you would open for him and he want not play reggae and you playing the reggae um, I got two yeah. questions here What did you learn from those early okay. years working with Flex and Where did the saying Cypher don't get gassed start and how did that saying come to come to fruition
2: so I learned a lot from Flex he's my OG mentor Flex would call me right now tell me to go get him a sandwich and I would go get it um, <laughs> the Flex when he got uh, I interned for DJ Riz and then he introduced me to Flex and I started mm-hmm. interning for Flex he taught me never take money to play records on the radio um, he taught me how to read a room. He's like, you don't have to be the most skillful DJ uh, in-, in party DJing. You know, we're not trying to win DJ battles. We were, we were trying to rock a party. And right. he said you got to read the room. Like, if there's a lot of girls and you playing a lot of MOP, it might not work. You know what I mean? You got to get them into their groove first. So I learned yes. how to, like, finesse-, finesse the girls with R&B. And then when more dudes show up, you start playing harder stuff. And you got to, like, don't stick at one... Genre of music, too long. One genre of hip hop, like mix it up, you know, like play for everybody. And if the room is not working out, maybe you got to go old school, maybe you got to go classics, maybe, um, you yeah. know, maybe you maybe you are playing too soft and it's time to start playing Nas and, and Wu Tang, you know. And a lot of people mm-hmm. just play what they want to hear and don't read the crowd. Also, Flex taught me, um, just. uh, it's like he didn't teach me the love of the game because I already had the love, but he taught me how to use the love to then make a career where a lot of people just try to make money and make a career. It's not just about
1: the check. Right.
2: Yeah. And the check is important. The check is important. But like Flex taught me to be in the hot room, right? Let's like, for Mm -hmm. example, the Def Jam Christmas party. Even if they don't pay you, it's worth it to DJ that party or anything like that, or an album release party. Like I, DJ'd Reasonable Doubt album release party in the Palladium. I opened up, and I didn't get paid, but it was so important to be there at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Don't Get Gas came from uh, the I was when I was first interning at the radio station. I you know we used to get drops back in the day, right? Like artists saying, "Hey, this is and so chilling mm-hmm. with," blah blah blah. So my first drop ever I got was from Russell Simmons. And I I was recording drops for Flex. And I said, hey, Russell, could I have a drop? He said, yeah, of course. He he just said, this is Russell Simmons chilling with Cypher Sounds. And Flex walked in right at that moment and was like, you getting drops? He's like, yo, Cypher, don't get gas." (laughs) So whenever I got to fill in for him on the radio, it was the only drop I had. And I didn't know how to talk on the mic back then, so I just used to play that drop. And then people just started yelling that to me in the street, like, don't get gas. So I took, I took Russell Simmons part off and just kept the don't get gas.
0: You was ahead of the curve on that one. (laughs) And um, yeah, shout out to shout out to Funkmaster Flex. I started my career working for Flex as well. And I think a lot of people see Flex as a commercial DJ, you know, and they don't understand that Flex, he got it out the mud, bro. Like Like, say what you want about Flex DJ style. Say what you want about him being a commercial DJ. There was a time in New York where he was the hottest underground hip-hop DJ. And Hot 97 was built around Funkmaster Flex DJ style. So the first real hip-hop station was built around Funkmaster Flex. So that's why he's the Don. That's why he's the OG when it comes to that. But, you know, people associate him with more street, more commercial hip-hop, more club banger hip-hop. Whereas you, you were able to move between different worlds. How were you able to stay so so connected to the Hot 97 world and the, the street world and the club world, but also stay in really, really in touch with the the, the, the backpackers and the underground, the scene that I was a part of? That, that's what I'm saying. Like, I get this question
2: sometimes, and, and people make it seem like it's the hardest thing in the world. Like, I just love the music, right? So I worked right. at... I worked at Fat Beats record shop also. I worked at Fat Beats record Mm -hmm. shop when I used to be on the road DJing for Little Kim. You can't get two different worlds, yo. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's so spread out. So I just loved hip-hop so much. Um, I could listen to the most commercial music. I could watch Video Music Box and watch a Father MC video. And then I could go and listen to, like, Stretch Mm -hmm. Armstrong and Barbito. Mm-hmm. And and I just love the music so much. And it feels like a lot of times they f- it feels like you got to make a choice. And I never I never really understood that. Like, I could listen to whatever I want in my free time for work. Okay, on the radio, I got to play certain songs. But there was songs that could creep through. You know what I'm saying? What if I find that underground record that could become uh, uh, a hip-hop smash, like a Simon Says by Farrell Monch or or Blackstar Records, Definition, you know what I mean? Like, there's
0: ways to get them in there. Now, you were were the first person to bring Definition to Hot 97, to bring Simon Says to Hot 97. You were the first person to play records by Sean Paul, play records by Rick Ross, play records by Rihanna. Why is your ear so ill? Because it's one thing to be a fan of the music, but it's another thing to be like, nah, this is the next hit, this is the next thing. How did your ear develop to be so ill? Well, first of all, I just want to say one
2: thing. Uh, I almost brought Simon says to hot 97 to fuck Master okay. flex. Uh, that was Buster Rhymes. Stupid ass Buster Rhymes beat me to the punch. Busta. <laughs> yeah. stealing my shine. <laughs> Buster stole my shine, yo. I'm literally bringing yeah. it to Flex. He's like, "Yo, Buster called me with this r- Buster. What are you? What the Damn. hell's happening?" Oh, yo,
0: Trevor. Yeah, Buster jumped on the remix. <laughs> He jumped on the remix and he directed the video. Like, Buster was like, Yo. nah, this is my song, nigga.
2: <laughs> um, I just, like, again, like, I wasn't DJing to get girls. I wasn't DJing to get free liquor. Like, I don't even drink. Like, what? I wanted to move. Sorry. I wanted to make hip-hop the biggest thing in the world. That's all I wanted. So, like, I was constantly, mm-hmm. constantly listening to songs and seeing how they could work and where they could fit in. And like breaking a song on the radio is one thing. Breaking a song in a club is a whole nother because you can Mm -hmm. see the reaction. You can see the reaction. People are just like, what are you playing? And you're like, in four weeks, you're going to love this song, but I got to get it on. And I just, um, you know, obviously we're going to list the great records and artists that I broke. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, in there too like there was some records that I tried to break and just didn't do anything but yeah. Yo, man, what you happened
0: just... what what happened to um what happened to uh what's the name of the dude um in my projects wasn't that you was an Ar for that Ooh. right yeah cuckoo cow Cuckoo Cuckoo cow didn't you fly to Milwaukee yeah. and help that record happen
2: yeah I signed that record to Tommy boy um we went in we, we found that record it was amazing got like number one on the rap charts. And then uh, we did an album, and then there was a lot of just, you know, you know the sad rap stories. Like, there was, like, sh- a lot of street dudes involved. There was some drugs involved.
1: What was one of the also... artists that you can remember <laughs> that you thought was really going to be, like, fire, and then you brought it in, and it was like, eh, eh?
2: Oh, man. I don't think it was really, it wasn't any, like, new artists that you wouldn't know. It was just certain records that didn't. Mm go the way we wanted them to. Um, ah, I can't think of any. Uh, I'll, f- I'll find one, I'll tell you. Okay.
0: Um, <laughs> you was A&R at Tommy Boy, you was AR and at Raucous, you was VP at Rock La Familia. Um, there's a famous mm-hmm. lyric by the Jizzer, by the first of all, Who's your who's and AR? A mountain a mountain climber that plays an electric guitar, but he don't know the meaning of mm-hmm. dope. Why you looking for a suit and tie rapper that's cleaning it in the bar? So what makes a good AR and why is the A&R the boogeyman of the of the music business? Uh okay, there's a lot of reasons
2: why I think I was a good AR, and then there's a lot of reasons why I don't think I was a good AR. The good AR to me, an AR can speak two languages. You can speak the artist language. Mm-hmm. and then you could go into a meeting the mm-hmm. next day at the label and speak the label language and hopefully if you're a good A&R you you get everyone in a good middle ground so i was doing it purely out of love and i try to find music uh that would work particularly for a certain artist and I've noticed that when I was in these A&R meetings, a lot of people were trying to just impress their boss to get promotions and bonuses and all that. And I was doing it for that actual love of the music. So because I didn't play politics, I didn't move up a lot in certain fields of the music industry. But I put out and, and was part of a lot of huge and famous records. You know what I'm saying? You got to be willing to stay all night in the studio. I never left before artists. artist. Uh, I never left before like I was the last one to leave the studio I don't care how late they was in there I would stay with them um, I would go anywhere with them when you're recording an album or a project you gotta go buy weed you gotta go get food mm. you gotta go pick up the producer's reel to real tape that he had the. you know before it was all digital where you could just email the song you gotta go pick up the reel in, a, in, a, in somebody's basement in, in Newark you know what I mean like so I was willing to do all that because I loved it so much. And every day I got in, every day I went to work, I was like, at least I don't have to work a job that I hate or work a nine to five, Amen. you know? Like, so I, that's what fuels me to this day. Do you know um Shakir Shake? Uh he used to work for yeah. LA Reid. Uh unfortunately he, he committed suicide a few yes. years back. But um he, when I just when I broke the Rick Ross record, I brought that record to Jay-Z. And eventually Rick Ross got his deal and became Rick Ross, who he is now. And I never got credit for it. And yeah. I was such a nice person, or I still am a nice person. I thought just, okay, I did all of this. Somebody's going to come back and give me my credit, and they never did. And mm-hmm. Shakir sat me down and was like, yo, this game ain't like that. Like you gotta, You should have had Rick Ross sign something before you even called Jay-Z, before right. you even brought him to the label. And that's what taught me a lot about you know getting your credit beforehand, or get or locking it in because you'll get amnesia. Not me. I, a lot of people get amnesia towards me.
1: Uh, you are also a tour de- a tour DJ for the amazing Queen Bee, Lil Kim. We had her on our show. Shout out Lil Kim. Uh good Can evening. you share? Can you share a good tour story? I I did see that you talked about being in a shootout with her.
2: Man, a couple of shootouts. Thank you.
1: Give me the best one then.
2: <laughs> uh, my favorite, my favorite shootout story? Uh yes. First of all, I love Kim. I love Kim to death. She 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 put me in the game, took me around the world. You know what it was like to DJ for Little Kim in '96, '97, like when she, she was, was on top, on fire. top fire. And everybody wanted to see Kim. So we went everywhere. Um mm-hmm. we was in one of the Carolinas. Maybe the North one, maybe the South one—I don't remember. Uh, there was some dudes from Brooklyn that used to be down there hustling, and they knew Kim and Junior Mafia from the block, and so they put together a show, and it was like in a sh- in a in the woods, like in a country shack or something, <laughs> and they put together a show, and when we got there, they didn't have the second half of the money. So, Kim got extra mad because Kim was like, Yo, like, you, like, we family, like, we shouldn't be going through this, what we go through with other promoters with you. You're supposed to have our money. So, I go out, I set up, the DJ booth was not on the stage, it was in the back of the room, like where the club was. So, I go and set up, I come back to the green room to find out why we're not performing yet, and Kim is in there screaming at these dudes Yo, y'all trying to play me? You know I ain't like this. And she flips over a table. All the fried yes. chicken goes flying. She flips over the table. She goes, she's like, Sype, pack it up. We leaving. The crowded by now the crowd is screaming, Lil' Kim, Lil' Kim, Lil' Kim. The green room is literally on the stage just behind the wall. So she's like, we leaving. Go get your shit. So I have to go back outside. When I come outside, they scream because they think I'm going to start the show. I'll start packing up. Little Kim and all the Junior Mafia dudes come out the the stage door, get off the stage and start walking towards the back to the car. And I hear someone scream, she's trying to leave. Yo, when I tell you all types of gats came out, like everyone in the club had a gun. So they like, Saif, let's go. So I start running to the door. We get in a van, like one of them 15 passenger vans, 15 person passenger vans. And they literally start shooting at the van. And everybody we're all on the floor ducking in the van. And I'm like, I just wanna play music, yo. (laughs) I just wanna play music. What's happening? Was the van bulletproof? No. (laughs) The windows shattered, there was bullet holes on the side. It was crazy.
1: When Lil' Kim came to our show, she had, like, a 12-person entourage. How was her entourage back then? Was it more than that? Or, like, how was it?
2: It varied. It was always a lot. Um, uh, in the early, early days before the album came out it was me, Lil' C's, Trife, uh, Jacob. You know the biggie line where he goes, my my man Jacob, hook a steak up? Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy, Jacob. And another guy named Buck. And then as... She started blowing up more, and the album came out. A couple more people. D-Rock started coming out with us. And then Glam Squad started coming out. And if we did a show anywhere in the tri-state area, there'd be, like, a hundred Brooklyn people with wow. us. At any time, yo. Still to this day, I could walk in the city and see somebody from Brooklyn. They, like, they used to be down with, like, Biggie and Kim.
0: Speaking of ill clubs, Jared Meyer, who starts uh, one of the co-founders of Raucous, tells... A story about how you took him to Club Demerara's in New Jersey to show him what Raucus was missing. And you was trying to help Raucus break into <laughs> the clubs. You're trying to get most and <laughs> Quali to get in played in the clubs. Tell me about you taking white ass Jared to Demerara to black ass Demerara's. Oh man, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> look,
2: Jared Meyer. Uh great guy. He hired, he gave me my first job in the industry. Um, and he wanted me to find records for raucous or that were already on raucous that could work in like the tunnel nightclub and clubs like that. Mm-hmm. And he'd play me songs all the time. And I'm like, nope, nope, nope. I like that song, but it won't work in the tunnel. I was like, why don't you come out with me and see what? The people like, not, not this college white boy, no offense, Jared, not this college white boy hip hop, <laughs> but like real street hip hop. And I'm not saying we have to make mm-hmm. those records, but we got to see what they are to, to be able to infuse it. You know what I mean? And I, we took him to yeah. the club and it's like, I, it's different now. Like nowadays, like it, you see things like that. But back then I walked in with this white guy, I think he had like an army jacket on or something and
0: people were like, "Yo, who's your lawyer, yo?" <laughs> <laughs> now, you um you are a Puerto Rican dude from the Bronx, New York, which I feel like it doesn't get more hip hop than that. Um you are also in your in your comedy routine. We're going to talk about the comedy in a second too, but you do a great joke about why Puerto Ricans and why Latino people in New York City use the word nigga and Latino people in other places in America don't use the word nigga. And then you've also, I've also heard you tell a story about you being with your black friends on a trip and being called a nigga. And so, me being from New York, yeah. I understand that Puerto Rican and black people and Dominican people, we all grew up in the same buildings, in the same neighborhoods. We go to the same bodegas, yeah. we have the same experiences. And so we all are treated the same. So we all use the same language and lingo. But then it doesn't it doesn't play well outside of New York City. Now that we're more global Uh, you know, more global community. So can you speak to you being Puerto Rican and why you use that word and the pushback you might have gotten and how you've defended yourself? I never, ever, ever got pushback
2: because this is going to sound weird. When we break it down academically, it's going to sound not right. But I'm just saying when you live the life, I don't use the word in any type of racial way. The word is a is an accent in the hip-hop vernacular. I've never but, but used
0: Saif, it. But, does that mean that yeah. even white kids could use it?
2: I didn't say that. I definitely didn't. But
0: <laughs> well, because I'm saying that, <laughs> that, say that, as you, you the guy, you the, you the guy that took Jared to Demerara, so you know that there are white yeah. people in hip hop. So when you say it's a part of the hip hop vernacular, does it count for even white people? You know, no, we no, got no. Ari, the rugged man. We got we got real white people that's really down with hip hop. Yeah. Here's the here's the thing with the word. First of all, I didn't say
2: anyone can use it in hip hop vernacular. I said it's okay. part of my hip hop vernacular. Right. Right. Now, right. So, we could break it down a couple different ways, right? First of all, Latino is not this umbrella uh, umbrella statement you can make about all people that speak Spanish. Caribbean mm-hmm. Latinos are not the same as South American or Mexicans, right? Caribbean Latinos, mm-hmm. Puerto Rican, Dominicans, Cuban people are black African slave ancestors. You know what I'm saying? Now... A lot of Puerto Ricans like me, I'm, I don't look black because the thing about Puerto Rico is that slave masters, Indians, the Taino Indians and Africans all mixed and, and made different skin tones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was very more acceptable for slave owners to sleep with and have slave relations in the Caribbean more than it was when they got to the States. Mm-hmm. So there's a different mm-hmm. there's a different cultural history uh, of, of why Caribbean people look, you know, this way. But sla- Spain had the same amount of slaves as, as England. We j- they just spoke a different language. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, that's why everyone in South America speaks Spanish. Like, there's Colombians that are black people. The problem is mm-hmm. they, ch- they try to tell us we're not black. Mm-hmm. And they want us not to b- b- f- be allies with black. Like I'm, like, I'm not an ally to a black. I am black. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. they they keep us separate because they don't want the numbers to grow. You know what I'm saying? But like yeah. Sammy Davis Jr., Sammy Davis Jr. is half Puerto Rican. Does he look Puerto Rican? Like he's black. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Now what I hate right. is Latinos that are have black hair, black skin, and they say I'm not black. No, no, I'm no. I'm black. I'm no black. Like, what are you talking about? Look in the mirror. How you say you're not? Like, because they don't associate black with like uh, your skin tone or your features. They 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 connect it with crime and drugs and street thugs. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that being said, uh, that's why I'm allowed to use the n-word. So go ahead. But um, I never. (laughs) I never. I I don't. I don't. Oh, am I allowed to say it here? Oh, I don't know if I should say it in front of this crowd. It's a word I use, and I've said it in in the deep south, in the hood, and no one questions me because it's authentic. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, I'm not saying it as, like, mm. oh, I wonder if I'm cool, if I can say it, or do I get a pass? Like, it's just how I talk. And I've seen people, like, turn it on and off, and that that bothers me. It's weird. Like, I try sometimes, like, maybe I shouldn't say I try to stop
0: myself. Like, it's just part of the, of the New York talk. I mean, for me personally, um, no one ever questions me. I don't have the Latino thing, so no one ever is like, oh, no one ever gives me a reason to not say it other than just it's a nasty word. But I think it's just something that grows, comes with age. As I get older, yeah. I say it less. I grew up in the same communities as you. Yeah. I use it in the same casual way. But as I get older, I find myself wanting to use it less and less. So I think it's just mm-hmm. age same. comes experience and wisdom. It's weird. Like, I say it all the time. It's just my normal speak.
2: But, like, if my five-year-old daughter said it, I would... It would be a different thing. Like, she didn't right. grow up where I grew up. Like, she... You know what I mean? Like, it right. would... I wouldn't want my daughter or, or my son to say it, but I say it, and I and I could defend why I say it, and even... Why does it even have to be defended? Um, so, yeah, it's the same thing. And also, I understand the history of the word and how hurtful it is, and I try to not say it, too, but I don't know. It's just... It's just a normal word to me. It's weird, and it has nothing to do with race. Like, it, it just defines things. Like, it it's a great word that defines a
0: lot of different things. Well, I, I, gotta, I gotta, I gotta push back on you a little bit because I think. What you, what you, how you broke down, how they want to separate Latinx, Latino, La- Latina people from Black people, even though we all together. It to me, it has everything to do with race. It has to, to do with the fact that you understand that you are a Black person. You understand mm-hmm. that you have Black experiences, which is why you say the word. But I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's absolutely race based. We took it back, and this, you can make an academic right. argument for us taking it back. You can make an academic argument for why we shouldn't use it. I think both arguments right. have valid valid point but I do think I do think it has to do with race and speaking of race you developed a great great friendship with Peter Rosenberg um and you guys started the first hip hop podcast (laughs) I see you shaking your head you guys started the first (laughs) hip hop podcast thank you um yeah and you and you leaned into the race aspect of it like you called it the Juan Epstein podcast Talk to me yeah. about Rosenberg and what your chemistry is like and why y'all decided to meet those issues head on. Uh, okay, first
2: of all, make sure your editor takes out the part where you say we're great friends because I don't like him personally
1: <laughs> at all. Uh, <laughs> Let's get uh, that clear.
2: No, I love I love Peter Rosenberg, man. That dude is, he's, the thing about, me and Peter Rosenberg have had a lot of fights Uh, in in the the long years of us knowing each other, the one thing that I could always say that always brings us back to being friends is that man's love for hip-hop music. He loves it so much that we have this common bond about hip-hop. We do things differently. We act differently. Uh, As we get older, we're definitely a lot closer. We also don't have to work with each other at 5 in the morning anymore, and that helps a lot to somebody's friendship. But... um. Mm -hmm. We, like, that's the thing, like, everything about Juan Epstein Podcast, and you're welcome for your now, um, new career, you're welcome, uh, is, (laughs) is the, is music first. Music first, right? right? So, I'm a Latino, quote unquote, he's a Jewish guy, Jewish white guy, when I told him, even though I tell him when the war breaks out, the white side is not gonna take him in their ranks, but whatever, um... Mm -hmm. we we tackled a lot of things because our radio show was a black, a Puerto Rican, and a Jew. Blank, blank, blank. Mm -hmm. So here we are in New York City. Yeah, we're in New York City, the melting pot. And okay, something happens in the news. How do black people look at it? How do Latinos look at it? How do white people look at it? How do uh, New Yorkers in general? Do I see your side? Can you see my side? So it was like a role we played to break down all the different angles of a news story, which I don't think anyone has really done since. And race mm-hmm. is just a big race is always a big part of talk in New York and in hip hop. It's, it's the I love race humor. I love race jokes. I love listening to uh, people talk about race. You know what I'm saying? I can sit back and talk to listen to Malcolm X and Farrakhan all day just instead of a podcast I'll mm-hmm. just put on an old Farrakhan speech like I love hearing mm-hmm. the history of race how it's broken down I don't I I, I, mm-hmm. I feel it's very uncomfortable for people and I'm like why is it uncomfortable let me learn about your side you learn about my side and we could come together
0: do you feel like they they did you dirty when they fired you and not and then didn't, didn't take your loyalty into consideration and do you follow up question I want you to answer both. With all due respect to Funk Master Flex, who's now Funk Flex, do you feel like part of it was him not relinquishing that role of that primetime DJ? Uh, First of all, yes. Hot 97 did me dirty.
2: Not any one particular person. The guy who actually... uh, First, I didn't get fired. I I quit. Um, The guy who I had problems with is not even there no more. My problem with the way I left Hot 97 was... I, 15 years of it was the greatest time of my life I thought I would never leave It was the greatest thing I could ever I did all these other jobs But Hot 97 was always home base uh, mm-hmm. a, a First important role, priority And the last two years were torture for me Because there was a lot of changes They merged with another company We got a new boss They moved things around They moved me around They put Ebro in, the morning show um, Ebro was getting moved around too It was, it was a horrible time And what I learned from that was, I learned the hard way that no matter what you do to a corporation, you're just a number on a piece of paper. Yeah. And if their numbers ain't matching up, they can take your number away to get the bottom line that they need. Um, I didn't ever, it took a long time Mm -hmm. for me to get this way, but I don't take it personal. Like there's a lot of things in hindsight I could have done to fix that situation, But I was already toying with the idea of leaving anyway, so it kind of worked out to my favor. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned within the first year, or first couple of years of of working with Funkmaster Flex, that he wasn't going anywhere. I thought I was Mm -hmm. training to be his (laughs) successor. Right, right, right. I learned that, (laughs) turns out that man wasn't going nowhere. So what I did was... (laughs) I started working on my personality more and started becoming more of an air personality so that I can get another slot on the radio. And with the humor that I was doing morning show seemed like the best route to go, but yeah, flex, he's still there. And people always ask me like, yo, why didn't flex save your job? He could have. And I said, no, I want to leave. It's time to go. I want to, I want to take this comedy thing for real and seriously, and I, I think in order to do that, I'm gonna have to travel more and put more time into it. And I was like, I think it's time to doubt. go. And I and I and I made the decision to leave. I was even gonna go. I'm gonna tell you this. I don't have an ego, Quali and Jasmine. I was gonna go back to weekends. I was gonna take my Saturday show back and be like, oh, all right, forget the morning show. I'll just go back to weekends where I like more anyway. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I could uh. And people were like, that's a demotion. You can't go back down the weekends. How could you do that? You had the morning show. After that, you supposed, like, what was I going to do? Like, move to Philly or move to North Carolina, or Virginia, like, and get a morning show there? That's not what I wanted to do. That's, like, what a lot of people have to do when you leave New York. You go somewhere else and you become that, the king of that castle.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I didn't want to mm-hmm. do that. I wanted to stay in New York and do comedy. So I was like, okay, maybe it's time yeah. to go.
1: Well, the fact that you had a job for seventeen years, kudos to you. I never last more than a year anywhere. So <laughs> that's fucking awesome.
0: <laughs> well, Jazz, Jazz, we've done fifty-two, at least fifty-two episodes of People's Party, so you lasted a year here. I'm still um, going, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cypher, you were signed to Rock Nation. I mean, what is what, what what's your relationship with Jay Z and what is being signed to Rock Nation even mean? <laughs> what's that face? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so now, that's a good question, right? Uh, oh, it's a great. No, Rock Nation, <laughs> yo, let me tell you something. Me and Hove, so we, I, there's not one time ever, I've known Hove since 96. We were in London and Clark Kent was his DJ. I was with Little Kim. Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. Uh, couldn't, they did something with his passport? they wouldn't let him into the country. So he asked me to, to DJ for him on this big festival we were on. So I asked Kim, I said, can I DJ for, for Jay? She said, yeah, of course. He, always, he was only doing like three songs. He did like Dead Presidents, Ain't No, and like one other song. And from there... You can say was nigga always,
0: here.
2: <laughs> you know why I don't say... When, <laughs> that you done made him scared. When you, when you, when you overly... When you overly talk about the word, then I feel weird saying. Right. It. Uh so ain't right. no uh, so, so me and Jay yo, this is gonna sound weird, but Jay-Z's like my mom, yo. Me and him oh, have no. all we
0: ever have is Oh wait, wait, you made my you made my ear thing fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't he like your dad though? No, I don't. My dad
2: died when I was three. I'm Puerto Rican. Come on, I didn't know my dad. Um, <laughs> yo, me and Hove have the most, it's just a never ending sarcasm battle. And it's just mm-hmm. all we ever do is throw shots at each other. It's, I don't, we've had kind words maybe twice. You know um that movie I think it's called Tag where they a lifelong tag game mm-hmm. they're playing. Mm-hmm. That's me like giving yeah, yeah. him just shots, sarcasm shots, like sublims. Like if people saw us talking to each other, it'd be like they think we're mortal enemies. Um but uh so so Hove, um I I I I I tried to get um I introduced Hove to Damian Marley when Jamrock was first mm-hmm. out. I try to get Hove to sign Uh, Damian Marley, Um, I I got hold to to, uh, we was trying to do um, Rihanna obviously got her signed there and then um, we there was one other thing oh True Life trying to get True Life signed to to Def Jam at the time Rockefeller and he saw that I and Rick and I told him about Rick Ross too and he saw that I had my ear to the street so. He uh, offered me this job at this new label he was starting, rocklaw familiar with OG Wan. If you're not familiar with OG Wan, he's like, you always hear him getting shout out in in Jay Z records. So I worked directly under OG Wan, um, OG Wan, Jay Z, and then OG Wan's wife is this woman named Des Perez, Desiree Perez. She ran Forty Forty Club when when uh, when Jay and, and OG Wan owned it. Or I don't know if she was part owner, but she ran it. They are, and Ty, uh, uh, Tata, they're all the foundation of Rock Nation. So I was working for them before Rock Nation was even a thing. You know what I'm saying? Before it even evolved. So when I left Hot 97, OG1 was like, yo, I don't want you to look bad in the streets like you lost everything by leaving Hot 97. He's like, so what we'll do is you come over to Rock Nation. That way you still have this umbrella around you, um... And what they do, like, for me, I don't know what they do for other people. They do a lot of different things. For me, they gave me a foundation. They, they're technically my managers on the music side. But Rock Nation, like, you got to be a hustler to be on Rock Nation. If you're waiting mm. for them to do everything for you, you will not make it. It's, it's, a, it's a, like an entrepreneurial right. boot camp. Like, you have to be able to do And then, like, I said I had an idea for a TV show. I would love to bring it to a production company and they sent me to Will Smith's office. So like if you have everything your ducks in line, they have the connect to to send you to where you need to go to make that happen. If you wait for them to do it, okay. you'll be waiting around a long time. But
0: they family uh, talk- that's for everything
1: You talked about uh, you leaving Hot 97 to work on your comedy. And you also said the quote, comedy is built on bad experiences. What does that quote really mean to you? And how has that helped you uh, help guide you through your comedy career?
2: Oh, that, that, yeah, the comedy is a weird job because like DJing, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours in my basement practicing where nobody could hear the horrible parts and I would practice and right. practice and practice my scratching, my mixing. So when I did eventually get to be able to DJ parties, I already had years of practice under me Where in private. There's no way to get good at comedy in private. Unless you on you on have to go on stage. <laughs> and when you first go on stage, you have no idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So right. you just it's a horrible feeling. And luckily, the only thing that saved me was that I was already used to being on stage. Mm -hmm. So that gave me like a little leg up from like a guy who just started yesterday doing comedy and had never touched a microphone. Like at least I knew how to speak. Um, uh, But yeah, that was literally like, I remember I bombed so bad once. (sighs) I didn't go on stage for like three months. And I was like, okay, that was fun. I'm (laughs) not even, not even. I'm not even doing that anymore, but there's something, there's a, a little tiny voice, it's like a calling. It's like, nah, just just try again, yo. Just try mm-hmm. again, get up there. And now when you get to a certain level, I'm not saying by any means I rip every time, but now when you bomb, it's it's funny. It's like fun. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, that was right.
0: That was a rough one, but it still hurts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. I was I'm watching uh, the show Crashing and the the lady, the lady who uh who runs the comedy cellar. Uh, is like a uh, she said. Uh, she said a uh, a good a good bomb is better than a bad kill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did. Uh, you did nineteen episodes of Chappelle Show, making you officially like the Chappelle Show DJ. Um yeah. How did you meet Dave Chappelle, and was he, he working with him? Was that sort of a spark for you to help to help you take this comedy more seriously? One
2: hundred percent. Dave is, Dave is my OG in all of this comedy shit. Um, I don't remember. I remember the first time I met him. I, want, I think it was a studio. I think it was a, a session where you and most were both there. I think it was after Black Star. Because Dave's on your first album, right? Yes. Dave is on. And, and um, the second one? On Reflection. First and second album. So somewhere in that time when he was doing that for you, whatever, I met him in a studio. And then we just, you know, he recognized me from the radio. We said, what's up? And then we were at a party. It was a Green Lantern Shady Records party. And I saw him again. And he didn't really know anyone else there. So we, like, kind of just hung out. You know when you find someone you know at a party, you kind of cling to them? Mm Mm-hmm. And we hung out. And I was with some random girl. uh, And then he goes, yo, I'm going to... I'm gonna go do a set at the comedy cellar. Do you want to go? And I was like, Yeah, I've never seen like stand up before like on like on that level. Uh, I would love to go. So we walked over to the comedy cellar. He gets on stage, he does like two hours, and then <laughs> we leave. And we it's oh, oh the thing about Dave stuff that him and I were talking about on the walk over to the comedy cellar. He said on stage mm-hmm. mm, and made it into a right. joke. From the five block walk. And then he turns it into a joke. And that's when I was like, oh, I got to get nice with the, with the wordplay. Not trying to be a comedian. Just like taking something I hear and saying it on the radio. And then he asked me, uh, yo, I'm shooting some pilot for, for Comedy Central. He's like, Would you, could you like DJ like when the crowd is coming in and like stuff like that? I was like, yeah, no problem. So I go. We shoot the pilot. I'm DJing the pilot episode, whatever. It was at Pace University, the same place they do, um, where they used to do uh, Inside the Actors Studio. I bump into him again months later, and I go, oh, Dave, what's up? Whatever happened with that, with that, with that pilot thing? And he goes, oh, yeah, they, they gave me a show. I'm <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> do you care about the show at all? Nonchalantly. He's like, "He's like, I don't know, whatever. Just, he goes, oh, you should DJ on it, like when we do the, the wraparound parts with the crowd. So I was like, okay, do you, do you want me to or no? Like he asked, like he don't even care. And then I go there and it's just like, we, we would, before he would start the show, he would warm up the crowd, like talk to the crowd. And I would just play little funny things with music. And he, he used to tell me, he's like, yo, your timing is good. Like he's like, you haven't thought about doing stand-up? I was like, ew, stand-up, Why would I do that? It's disgusting. And then, uh, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to thank you for letting me flex my improv skills because I used to do improv at NYU. I went to Tisch Theater, Experimental Theater, and you had an improv show with Upright Citizens Brigade called uh, Take It Personal. I came up there and I acted out some stories with the improv actors. Upright Citizens Brigade, you know, Amy Poehler comes out of there, right? And Aziz Ansari comes out of there. And now Cypher Sounds. Like, what's? why do you feel like the improv is so important?
2: Oh, I love improv. There's this weird... There's this weird battle between stand-up comedians and improv yes. comedy. They yes. for some reason they don't like each other. Or well, stand-ups don't like improvisers. Um, but I love improv is basically we take sometimes we take a one-word suggestion or like a phrase, or what I used to do a show where I used to get rappers to come tell stories and then we would make up a show on the spot from that story. So you take that one mm-hmm. phrase and then you make up a whole show on the spot. What I love about it was the team effort. I like mm-hmm. stand-up. Stand-up is kind of lonely. Um, you're up on stage by yourself, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, if you're on stage, you travel by yourself a lot. You do things by yourself a lot. Uh, I like improv with the group part of it, and, like, we're all in this together. Uh, so I love the team effort of it. I love the group mind. Um, I used to, I like, here's people ask me, do I like stand-up or improv better? It's about the same. The only thing about improv that I like 1% more is that it's, it's always different every single night. You literally mm-hmm. make it up on the spot. Where stand-up, you're working on material that you say over and over and over. And there's a lot of improv you might do inside your stand-up, but you're working on crafted material. Mm-hmm. And improv is different every night. So the... the, the, the um, the uh, variety of it I like.
1: The fact that <laughs> comedians and improvers have so much beef, I feel like comedians, stand-up comedians that know improv do better on stage because those times when you are bombing, it's easier to get out of it if you know the art of improv.ing And And yeah. uh, improv is like the foundation for all different art forms.
2: Okay, here's the thing. If the... F- the- Everything about an improv show, I'm not talking about you as a stand-up improvising on the moment, but when you go to see an improv show where like it's like f- anywhere between five and eight people doing a show made up on the spot. If the first one you see sucks, mm. which is a highly probable situation, you'll never want to go back. Because when an improv sucks, it's really horrible to watch. And drawn out. But when it's good, <laughs> when it's good, it's amazing. But it's a lot of times you're going to go. If you drag someone to an improv show and it sucks, you feel the guilt as they look over at you. Like, what am I watching here?
1: <laughs> okay, so Laugh Mobs, Laugh Tracks. We're on a show together. Shout out to yeah. uh, Laugh Mob, Laugh Track fam um, on True TV. Uh, Were you a part of that from the beginning or when the idea was created? Or did you come more on no. the tail end?
2: No, I was lucky just to get casted as the host. Um, I say lucky, uh, in a, in a weird way because they never listened to me, but, um, they already had the show, uh, going for a long time. And then, um, they were looking for, they, they used to have just the sketches and they would play them on YouTube or world star, whatever they played them. And then they needed someone to tie all of them together. So that's where I came into play. So I was blessed to get it, but it was never my show. It wasn't my idea.
1: And the show really underscores the idea of comedians as storytellers. Is that the type of comedian, yeah. uh, is that the type of comedy that you're most interested in?
2: No, I mean, I like it. I like all types. Like I could watch the greatest story to, like I could watch people tell amazing stories, but I also like corny one-liners, you know what I'm saying? I like, mm-hmm. I like it all. I like deep comedy. I, I just don't like um I, I don't like when comedians try to be take it too seriously. Mm. Like it's still gotta be funny. Like I understand we're talking about serious things, but I don't like when you try to make comedy look like ballet or something. Like, just crack a joke, son. Like you're just having <laughs>
0: fun. <laughs> but I, I like That's ball, a good lesson man. for life. Yeah. That's a good I, lesson for life treat, not to take yourself yeah.
2: too seriously. Why so serious. Yeah, we could laugh about yeah. I laugh about anything, man. Like it's, it's it breaks the ice. It you know it, it it
0: helps with tension and stress like it really is a a, a laughter is the best medicine is a cliched phrase but yes. it's really true. One hundred percent. like it's very true. Laughter, po- yeah. The the people comedy often comes from a place of pain and um I've never been yeah. to a comedian's funeral. Never been to a comedian's funeral, but I've heard stories and I, I know I hang out with a lot of comedians, so I've heard them come back and tell about the jokes they tell at each other's funerals, mm-hmm. yeah. which seems dark. But it seems like a coping me- mechanism that's necessary if if that's who you are. Yeah. No, I'm saying I heard Patrice O'Neal funeral was the
2: funniest comedy show ever created. Damn, I wish like, I could have been hermaning- right. Yeah. They right. said it was like the it was a roast. It was a a a, 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 s, a so many people's specials could have been shot there. Like I heard it was I right. I don't like going to funerals. Um, right. I don't know. like seeing people dead in a way i don't like i I didn't see my grandmother in the coffin i didn't see both my grandmothers i won't look it's in hard. the coffin i don't like going to funerals yeah
0: i don't want the memory mm-hmm. i don't want the, to see that right um you um you're straight edge you know that's a punk rock term you're straight edge yeah. like you don't drink you don't smoke people don't know that about yeah. you because you look high as fuck yeah. all the time right so look, at, look, look Look at these eyes yeah i see <laughs> i see I I was, the
1: same eyes I,
0: yeah, but you drink and smoke, Jasmine, so you know. But not <laughs> for, but <laughs> Cipher, this 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 is what I want to ask you. This is what I want to ask you. You addiction is not just drinking and smoking, right? You yeah. I seen you out here in Yellow Springs. I complimented you. You look great. You look like you lost a lot of weight, you. and you've been talking Thanks. publicly about weight issues. You've been talking about over overeaters anonymous. You've been talking about how yeah. you know the mental health and food addiction. Again the, the drug, mm. you know, substance abuse is not the only addiction. Speak to me about the taboos yeah. around food addiction and why you feel the need oh. as Cypher Sounds the personality to speak out about it. It's I mean the, the reason why I can even speak about it is because
2: I I went through it. Like if you look at old pictures of me and Talib Kweli in the old days, I was like 90 pounds, yo, like I was dumb skinny. <laughs> and then um something right. happened.
0: Me too, brother.
2: Yeah. Something <laughs> happened and it went Like Well, here's the sad part about it. My father died when I was three. Um, My Mm -hmm. mom didn't even know her father. So I didn't have a father. I didn't have a grandfather. I had no genetic mapping system of where my life would go weight-wise, food-wise, any of that stuff. Um, As far as males, you know? And uh, I just started gaining weight like in the mid-2000s. And... I didn't know I was not an athletic person. I definitely ate a lot of junk food, and I think food is the worst addiction because, um, like, you have to eat to live. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to do cocaine to live. You don't have to smoke weed to 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 eh. live. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people. <laughs> it's a herb. Um, it's natural. It's medicine. Yeah, so like the way like and there's no there's no like cocaine commercials on TV. Every commercial is food, <laughs> restaurant, the new package We is. have the meats. Yeah. Yeah, the new process this. So like it got really bad for me and um my grandmother part of the reason why she passed away was diabetes. Patrice mm-hmm. O'Neill had complications with diabetes. Um my doctor said I was pre-diabetic. So it just gave me like a a boost um but i struggle yo this trip
0: this trip has ruined my whole progress during coronavirus quarantine me, me too brother me too me too the same thing i came from la there's vegan options everywhere i'm in yes. ohio it's like Frisch's, Frisch's big boy and shit i'm like <laughs> yeah waffle house that's it like what the fuck yeah. i guess i'm eating waffles tonight
2: <laughs> yeah so i feel and, and i can see how the addiction is so bad because like Already, I'm already breaking all these new good habits I have just being on the road, you know. Um, right, right. But I, I, I speak on it. Here's why. I've been trying to get a little healthier. I've been t- trying to run. I want to speak to a group of people that are like me. Not, I'm not trying to train for a marathon. I'm not trying to be the best athlete. I'm just trying to get a little healthier. And no mm. one talks to, no one talks to people like that. They, it's either one extreme or the other. You know what I'm saying? And I'm trying to be like, hey, let's just do three miles. Let's just get three miles under our belt today and like,
0: not eat fast food every meal. Right. You know? So Cypher, you've grown as a DJ. You've grown as a comedian. What's next for you? I, I, really, I really like this fitness
2: influencer life I'm living. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lululemon already sent me boxes of clothes, so mm. I'm chilling okay. right <laughs> did you know okay. Did you guys know Lulu had a, yep. a a fabulous running attire? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, nah son. Um fusing music and comedy is the goal of uh, is my main goal. Um, I started doing stand-up comedy with my DJ setup on stage and I have a lot of mm-hmm. jokes that I can DJ like the punchline is me DJing. Mm. Or there's, like, jokes that go along with my mm. DJ. So, like, I kind of gave up DJing to do this comedy thing. And then uh, I, I, I missed it. I missed the feeling of DJing. So, I, like, kind of tried to in- incorporate it. And now it's becoming, like, my thing. Uh, I toured with uh, Michael Che from Saturday Night Live. And he as he got bigger, we started doing um, theaters. And I was just like, so we're just going to walk out on this 2,000-seat theater? And it's just... Like someone's gonna introduce us and then we walk out to a cold ass room. I was mm-hmm. like, why don't I DJ in the beginning and then uh, and then I'll and then I'll start the show. And it's like became like a whole new a whole new thing that we do. But Dave, Dave right, that makes way too much to sense. DJ. Right. Yeah. I was just shout like, out to Dave Chappelle. Oh, he's he doesn't understand how comedians don't have music playing before the show. Like, why are you not creating a right. vibe, a fun vibe? Yes.
0: Right. Well, he, you know, he comes from the music world, and you come from the music world, and you know, yes. I'm, I, it's my honor and my pleasure to know you. I'm glad we're out here with Dave. You, you've been doing these shows. Um, we should go running, Cipher. We should get Michelle Wolf and try to keep up with her. Um, get a you know, GoPro I, and film. It's love, it. brother. Yeah, it's love, ladies and gentlemen. Cipher sounds. Give it up, people's party. Oh, thank you. I'm clapping by myself and locked down. This, this is crazy.